be patient. You have to wait for these opportunities to come up. And I probably should have been a little more patient. Wait for the right opportunity. Don't just take the job that sounds great at time and you're just willing to sacrifice all the other things that you value. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you understand how to reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and do work that matters. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to discuss how he relaunched his career from being a data engineer to a management consultant to a product manager in the tech industry. We'll discuss the importance of waiting for the right moments to make a career pivot into a new industry. And afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'm going to share my views on when to turn down career opportunities. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Shi, who began his career as an engineer at AMD, then created a scrap metal trading company specializing in export to Asia. He eventually returned to the tech world as a data engineer at an Austin startup called Bizarre Voice while pursuing his MBA at the University of Texas at Austin. He then moved into management consulting, first at Infosys, then Deloitte, afterwards transitioning into product management at Microsoft, and is now a senior product manager at Unity Technologies. Now, I first stumbled upon Jeff after spotting his article on Medium about how to make a shift from management consulting into product management, and I really wanted to get him on the show because I cross paths with a lot of people who want to move into new sectors, including those who want to move on from their technical roles into more general management or business development roles. So Jeff is going to explain how he pulled that off and also share some other insights on how to successfully transition into a new role that's seemingly unrelated to your past experiences. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 57. Jeff spoke with me from San Francisco. Okay, good morning, Jeff, and welcome to Career Relaunch. Hi, good morning, Joseph. Thank you so much for uh, the time today. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I want to talk through a few different topics with you today, Jeff, including the time you spent running your own business, your time in consulting, and also your transition into the tech world. But I was wondering if you could start off by just telling me what you're focused on right now in your career and your life. So in my career right now, uh, I'm at a company called Unity Technologies. Uh, We're one of the largest game engine and game tooling platforms out there. So you played, you know, games like Pokemon Go, uh, likely you played games made with Unity. So I'm moving into product management a few years ago. So uh, right now, focus a lot about our machine learning efforts at Unity. So been been at the company a couple of years, uh, and then prior to that was at Microsoft, uh, you know, in their intelligent cloud business. Uh, in terms of personal life, uh, you know, wife and I just had our first kid. So uh, congratulations! Oh, thank you so much. So that's obviously been a really interesting journey so far. But, you know, all all good stuff. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at now. Well, I do want to talk in more detail about what you're doing there at Unity. And I also want to talk through your transitions across different industries. But before we go back in time and talk through your professional history, in a nutshell, how would you describe the first few months of fatherhood and parenthood so far? One of the guys in my office, he had a really good quote and he had a couple of kids and he told me, uh, it was a Mike Tyson quote. And he said, okay. you know, all good, pl- all plans are great until you get punched to the face. Uh-huh. And sort of, <laughs> so that sort of, you know, kind of stuck with me a little bit. Um, you know, I think as much as you plan and, you know, do all the reading and research, 
about kids. You know, every every child is different. Every baby is different. And so it's been a great learning experience, both for understanding our child, but also discovering yourself as a father and, and of course, my wife as a mother and how we sort of react to, you know, our child in certain situations. So uh, all good things, uh, you know, all part of the, the, the learning experience of life. So it's been, been great so far. Fantastic. Well, you are absolutely right about parenting, opening up a whole new dimension to your life. And I think you are also absolutely right about the fact that planning really does you absolutely no good when it comes to parenting. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, let's go back in time a little bit because I know you haven't always been a product manager at Unity. And I was wondering if you could take us back to the time when you were running your own scrap metal trading company, and then we can move forward from there. How in the world did you get involved with exporting scrap metal to Asia? So, you know, I I was an engineering student at University of Texas. And, you know, while I was in school, I was actually working at AMD, you know, as a software engineer, as a contractor for almost two years. I was in a lab all the time, you know, either at school or at, at work, just writing code. And so I had this opportunity to, you know, was a family friend who needed an inspector in the U.S. sort of like last semester in college to look at some scrap metal. And then, uh, you know, fell in love with it. I was in Austin just last semester of college, going to the scrapyard, looking at material and, you know, decided after college, I wanted to get into that business. So it was just a transition. And it was kind of the first time, I think, in my almost in my, my, my life where I decided to do something completely different. And sort of set the stage for sort of later parts of my career. And you mentioned coding. I was curious if you could just give a glimpse into what it's like to be someone who does code all day. Because if anybody's been in any coffee shop anywhere in any major city in the world, you always see these people who are just sitting at their laptops writing code. What's that like to do that all day? It's a very enjoyable thing to do. And the thing I would describe coding in a couple of ways there's coding. You're sort of single person projects. It's like painting. So if you're a painter or if you're some sort of artist and you're making this really, really creative thing, it's really the sort of the same thing when it, when you're doing a you know, single person, you know, very artistic, very creative projects. So for me, I think even from my days in high school and before, you know, coding was always this very therapeutic thing. You, you know, you break the problem down very logically. You try all these different things. You know, you kind of get amazed when things kind of work, and then you start to like think about how to make this run faster. And then there's the other aspect of coding, which when you when you code in sort of a team aspect or with other people, that's when it becomes very very different. When you're coding by yourself and it becomes artistic, it's it's one thing. When you're coding with a team and you can't, you know, really go off on your own in, in a lot of ways, you have to you know work with the team to write much bigger pieces of software it becomes less coding and more about, you know, sort of the interpersonal aspect. You know, coding is, I think, in some ways, is sort of the secondary part. The first part is the coordination, making sure you're on the same page with others. And that's where it differs quite a bit. Okay, so you spent some time at AMD. You were trading scrap metal for a while, and then you made a shift into the consulting world. What made you realize that you wanted to get into consulting? You know, I, I don't know if you've seen that movie uh, Up in the Air with George Clooney. Um, oh, yeah, I have. It's a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think when I saw that, and of course, I, I did my research. I had friends who were in management consulting and, you know, we're sort of living this, you know, very interesting lifestyle where they would go to clients, advise, you know, you know, travel quite a bit, you know, live out of a suitcase. 
obviously the work was one aspect. You know, it's really interesting to be in a situation where you're you're kind of coming in helping companies either transform or manage you know, certain crises. And so for me, I think those two aspects, the lifestyle and the type of work, were really appealing. You like the travel. Yeah, the travel, the you know, the living out of the suitcase, you know, the constant pressure. Uh, to me, at the time, was very, very appealing. And in a lot of ways, it still is kind of appealing. And so when I went to the business school, uh, that was sort of my focus. Like, look, I, I want to go into, back to business school. Um, you know, I was working as an engineer at, at this company called Bizarre Voice at, in Austin at the time. And, you know, I was it basically made a commitment to go into management consulting. And that's kind of how I, I, I kind of transitioned. Because I, what I realized as an engineer um, was that I was really lacking a lot in the business aspect. I was always a pretty good coder. I, you know, would, had my own scrap metal business, but, you know, I was winging it like 90% of the time. You know, I looked at management consulting as sort of like finishing school when you finish business school. You, you sort of get the kind of the concepts, the schooling, the network and business school. And then management consulting really pushes you to become what I call like just like a better professional in your and whatever you're doing. So that was kind of how what kind of led me to go into management consulting, both the, the kind of work and the lifestyle. Now, I cross paths with a lot of engineers at business schools who want to get into management consulting. And I know it's a fairly competitive industry and you landed at some very reputable companies like Infosys and then after that Deloitte. What do you think is the secret to getting into a place like that when you come from a more technical background? There's kind of two ways to get into consulting. There is sort of the traditional path where you kind of go in the front door with everybody that's trying to get in, you know, and that's how I got into Infosys. Um, I'll, you know, I'll be the first to say, you know, I, I interviewed at Deloitte and all these other firms during on-campus interviews during business school. And, you know, I only got accepted in a couple of them and Infosys and, and it was one of them, you know, Deloitte rejected me on the first set of interviews. And that's always the harder way, right? Because you're, you're competing with a lot of people. You're competing with all your classmates. I mean, when you go to business school, especially the, in a top 20, 25 program, all the people are, are really smart. It's not like in technical where, you know, it's very clear if somebody really understands the technical side. And in consulting, they look for, you know, analytical ability, presence, all these different things that are a little bit, you know, you can practice those things to get better versus technical, which you just have to kind of know. Now, you know, if you're an engineer, you have great grades, you're super smart, you can adapt, you can, you know, do all this great stuff. You're just one of the, you know, the blue chip caliber talent. Then usually you won't have problem getting in. So I came in through what they call experienced hire recruiting. So because I had experience in the workforce, I had a lot of like some specific knowledge, especially in the advanced analytics and you know data science side. You know, I was able to get into places like like Deloitte, for example, through sort of like not my business school criteria, but a lot of just like my uh, you know knowledge of the space, especially in the analytics side. I think it's a lot easier for technical folks to get into management consulting because. The more straightforward part is the very analytical thinking, the breaking the problem up, you know, and solving it by chunks. It's a lot more natural to folks who are technical than folks who are not as technical. I think what always holds back folks who are technical is always the client presence, the emotional IQ, the, the presentation type of perspective. So I know you were working as a consultant for a few years, and then you made another shift I'm wondering if you can remember the moment when you started to think about making a shift into your current line of work, which is product management. So, so to be honest, I, I wasn't planning to leave Deloitte. I really loved working there. I loved the people. I had great relationship with the partners. You know, I had great relationship with you know, the clients I was working at. 
Now, the only sort of in the back of my mind was, okay, I would only really leave consulting for you know, an opportunity to work at a well-funded startup in, in an area that I had a lot of expertise. So for example, I wouldn't join some sort of company where I didn't really know, understand the space, wouldn't understand, you know, like the, the market or in a place where I would be sort of a junior role. Um, and that sort of just happened about two years after I was at Deloitte. This company called Bolin Metrics, which is based in Seattle, uh, you know, they had reached out to me, you know, in the past to sort of join their company. But, you know, they were in Seattle. I wasn't willing to move. And then, you know, they opened up at San Francisco office. And then the moment I talked to her at our time, uh, her name was Natalie, uh, our chief revenue officer. You know, she made a very, very compelling presentation to me at le- uh, about like what the company was about, what they were doing basically using uh, mail-in meeting data to into the space of like HR analytics. It kind of hit my criteria of like when, when I was going to leave consulting and everything sort of worked out. And, you know, that's was one of the moments that pushed me to leave consulting. I would say it was probably the hardest decision. Uh, I think if any, any time I've decided to leave a job, I think leaving Deloitte to a startup was probably the hardest decision. What made it hard? It is a difficult place in terms of like the work-life balance and, you know, I mean, it's, it's consulting. So you have a really fast pace, a lot of travel type of scenario, but it's, it's something, you know, you, something you get really comfortable with. There's something about delivering these crazy projects in a very high pressure environment while working with extremely intelligent people. That's something that, yes, it's a lot of work, but you, you know, it's, it's a very comforting thing. It's almost like a warm blanket. Like, you know, that's what I would like to kind of describe to what you're, you're in this kind of comfortable world where you know what's going on, you know the people, you know what you're you're, you're capable of. Uh, and to leave that to go into you know a company that you know hey it could be out of business in like a year or two, right? You know, anytime I've always made a transition, what always stuck with me, always kind of helped me with the the decision was that at any point in time I could always go back. So I think Deloitte for me was always a place where if this didn't work out, I wasn't happy or something like the company goes under or something like that. Deloitte was always a sort of a place where I felt like I could always go back. I had really good relationships with the partners. And Deloitte's one of those places where they actually encourage people to leave and go into the industry and then come back uh, because they, they find that to be a very valuable uh, you know, experience for you know, their future you know, employees as well. So it wasn't as, as hard, but it was hard in the sense that you know, you're leaving behind a lot of like colleagues and, and very interesting work. And then what made you decide to go into product management then? I yeah, never really planned, so to speak, to get into product management. When I was finishing business school, actually, I had a few offers to do product management at companies because you know, product management, especially if you have an engineering degree and then you get an MBA, that's usually the natural path most people take uh, out of business school. But I, you know, I always, back in my mind was, well, yeah, I would never really go back into you know, pure engineering. Like product managers always come to me in the back of my mind because you know, it was, it, it, you know, I worked with a lot of really great product managers in the past. And, you know, I always felt like these guys, you know, they understood the market, they understood our customers. And these are the guys that kind of kept the glue together in some of the product with engineering. So when our company got acquired by Microsoft, you know, there was an opportunity to move into the product side. You know, at the time there was, you know, we had a team at Microsoft, we had a team from our end. It was a nice role to be able to bridge the gap and, and help kind of rebuild our product, so to speak, uh, inside of Microsoft. You know, when they acquired us, they took parts of our technology, but, you know, we had to do, there was a lot of work uh, from the engineering side to get it, you know, sort of compliant and up and running at, at, within Microsoft's, you know, Office 365 stack. 
that was sort of like, you know, kind of just landed, you know, to be honest, like it was just something we, there was sort of a need. And at the time, you know, there was an opportunity to try it out. So I said, Hey, why not? It's Microsoft, you know, it's the best place to learn about building products uh, or one of the best places. And so that's just sort of what happened. And then, you know, once I started kind of getting into the role, you know, I, I basically really fell in love with it. Uh, you know, building products is a much, much more difficult thing than coding or, in a lot of ways, a lot more difficult than in consulting projects because you have to think about the problem in such different aspects. And so that's sort of how I, I got into it. Well, I do want to get into some of the contrasts and the differences between the two roles. Before we do that, I'm thinking maybe we should just pause and just define exactly what product management is for those people who are not familiar what a product manager does. How would you describe what a product manager does? If I had to describe it in a very general sense, because product management, you know, varies quite a bit across many companies, but I would describe it as like, you know, your one part, you know, project management, meaning that you have to kind of keep the communication, all of the sort of like timelines and when things are be delivered sort of together. It's one part, um, what I call like a requirements analyst. So there are, you know, guys who will go to talk to the customer. Let's say you're building accounting software, you know, you, you understand like, what is it that you need? What are the features? How does this, should this work? And the sort of the last part is like, you sort of this analyzer of markets, you know, where you try to understand like, okay, you're building a product, you know, you have to keep the project going. You have you know, a bunch of customers asking for this stuff. And then here's the, you know, the, the market in which you're trying to, you know, sort of sell your product. So I think with the product management role, you know, you, you're sort of like this, this liaison between many different groups. Is at the end of the day, you know, product success, however you define it, it could be, you know, engagement, it could be revenue. You know, you as a product manager are sort of like the person that makes sure, you know, at the foremost, it's being built correctly for the customer. And the second, making sure that it's, there's an actual market for your product. And the sort of third that, you know, you're making sure the project and all the schedules and all the stakeholders are, you know, are updated and, you know, are, are happy and everything is, is moving smoothly. Well, let's dive in a little bit deeper into your experiences at a, as a product manager then. A while back, Jeff, you wrote a Medium post about transitioning from consulting to product management. And I was wondering if you could tell us what it was like to go from a place like Deloitte to a place like Microsoft. And one of the things you mentioned in your article was that you were trading in suits and ties for hoodies <laughs> and white vans. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I did a lot of consulting in the banking sector. And I remember when I wrote that title, I was thinking, like, yeah, I would wear suits all the time. You know, I was wearing suit and ties. It's the notion of presence, and you know, it's almost like you know, you you when you go into this the consulting gigs, you have to be very you know, presentable. Versus when you build products, you know, it doesn't matter if you're wearing like you know basketball shorts and a tank top. If the product that you're building is extremely useful and a lot of people love it, and it you know beneficial and they find value, it doesn't matter if you're wearing you know suits, right? When you build products versus when you do you know, consulting engagements, you know, products have to last much longer than most consulting engagements. Products have to sort of have these have the legs of their own. They have to be extremely useful. You know, the customer buying your software or buying your product, you know, that's the ultimate indicator of success. Whereas consulting, you know, you could wear a really nice suit, you could speak really eloquently, you can you know, have these really great decks, but at the end of the day, you know, they're buying something a little bit different than, than sort of like a traditional product. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about before we talk about some of the things you've learned during your transitions along the way is something else that you mentioned in your article, which was that different revenue models create different incentives. Can you expand a bit more on that point? It's a pretty straightforward model. 80, 90% of the engagements are going to be something like, you know, you, you know, you have 10 people, they each are, you know, $200 an hour and you times however many hours you think this project will take. So that could be anywhere from 50 hours to a thousand hours. And it could be anywhere from teams of two or three to teams of like 20 or 30. So the revenue in some ways scales very linearly and it's straightforward. So you just know that, look, I, I, I bring some bodies to the problem and the client pays me a small percentage on, you know, on top of my cost. And that's how I make money. The metric I always look at is like revenue per employee. It can vary quite a bit depending on the, the space you're in. Software, for example, you know, you're talking, you know, some of these companies like Google, Apple have, you know, million plus dollars per revenue per employee. And so the scale of what you can achieve in terms of revenue, it, it sort of unlocks itself when you build you know, products versus when you do consulting. Consulting is always going to be limited by the, the amount of people you have. The people are your assets. But in the product side, you know, you can you can have a team of 10 people, you know, unlock millions of dollars of revenue on just a few set of products. Yeah, that's kind of one of the hardest things to sort of you know, going from a consulting to product manager to wrap, at least for me, to wrap my head around was that you, know, you have to think about scale in a much different sense than just adding more people to the problem. Well, the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up with one of your very interesting projects at Unity are some of the things you've learned along the way, Jeff. And I was wondering if you could first explain what it takes to successfully make the transition into a product manager role, because this is obviously something that you've done successfully yourself, and also because you are now involved in the hiring of other aspiring product managers who may have come from a different industry before. At the end of the day, there's a lot of things that are very low level that need to be done that nobody really wants to touch that when you get into product management, you can just kind of step in and start doing those things. Again, it could be a simple thing as keeping the documentation, you know, in order, you know, rewriting a few things, improving, you know, the workflows or processes. And so I think with product, moving into product management, I think that's like just something to keep an open mind. Another thing I think when you move in, at least for me, when I moved into product management, it was just, just to read a lot about what other really good product managers, uh, you know, either on their blogs or talking to them in person. I mean, I think I had probably chats with you know, 20 or 30 different product managers, either guys who were leading their own companies, the guys who were sort of like first or second year product managers at bigger companies. It takes time to form your own style in product management, to form your own sort of perspective and your own process. So I think with product manager transitioning is just to be very open about how people are approaching that problem. And then it's adapting it to your own to make it better. And given that you've successfully transitioned from being an engineer to a product manager, and I know that you're a consultant in between, if there was one piece of advice that you could have given your younger self as you were thinking about breaking into either something new or into product management, what would it be? You know, earlier in my career, I think I was sort of impatient. You know, I wanted to like take on more. I wanted to, you know, do all these crazy things. I wanted to, you know, be basically the CEO in like two years. I feel like I thrive the most when I'm actually doing something new or something I haven't done, you know, even, you know, something completely different I was doing just a few months ago. Um, but I think would tell my younger self to just be patient. You have to wait for these opportunities to come up. And I think I 
probably, you know, jumped the gun in a few in a few cases where I probably should have been a little bit more patient. Wait for the right opportunity. Don't just take the job that sounds great at time and you're just willing to sacrifice all the other things that you value. So I think that would probably be one thing I would tell my younger self. And what's something that you've learned about yourself having made a couple shifts first from engineering into consulting and then consulting into product management? I think the most I've ever learned in my career was starting was doing something new. And I, I know it sounds I know it sounds very cliche and it sounds very sort of boilerplate, but it, it helps to think of it that way that, you know, if I feel that things at work are getting stale or you know, I'm sort of getting this sort of like monotonous sort of routine is that, hey, you know, there's always something new to learn out there. And that's sort of what keeps me, you know, level-headed. At, at the end of the day, it's just like constantly near learning new things is what, both for like career satisfaction, which ultimately leads to like personal satisfaction. Well, I'd love to wrap up, Jeff, with what you're doing now at Unity Technologies. Can you just tell me a little bit more about Unity Machine Learning Agents, which is related to the future of AI and something I know absolutely nothing about? Uh, no, no, absolutely. So we hear a lot of things about AI, very, very exciting times. So all of sort of like the, what we call like the AI systems of the future, uh, if you're talking about you know, smart robots, drive, self-driving cars, uh, need data that exists in a virtual world. And it needs to be run, you know, like you're, you're in, this, in the case of like self-driving cars, you need something like in the tens of millions of virtually driven miles. So that's where the Unity and Unity machine learning agents sort of come in. Um, Unity, you know, it's a game engine. So you can, you know, sort of create these virtual worlds inside of Unity. And so if you want to train and, and have sort of these virtual simulations of anything to sort of like take that into the real world to put it into like these, you know, new smart or AI based systems, you need something like Unity and machine learning agents. So what we do is we provide basically you as a developer, you as a company who wants to create the, these new you know, AI systems, we provide you all the tools, both the, the game engine the simulator, and of course, like the bridge to all the machine learning uh, frameworks like TensorFlow and Keras through Unity's machine learning agent package. So kind of at a high level, that's, that's kind of what the, the, products, uh, the project I'm working on now. Wow, very fascinating. Well, if people want to learn more about you, Jeff, or the AI work that you're doing there at Unity, where can they go? Yeah, they can definitely check out my personal site that has links to, you know, the projects I'm working on uh, and others. And it's uh, www.shihzy.com. And that's, uh, you know, shizy.com. Fantastic. Well, we will make sure that we include a link to your website in the show notes, along with that great Medium article you wrote about transitioning into product management. And just wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to tell us more about your life as a consultant formerly and how you made the transition into product management and most of all some of the great useful tips you shared on how to make a successful transition so best of luck with your ai work there at unity and also that first year of fatherhood thank you so much Jess. appreciate it and thank you for the time so i hope you enjoyed hearing jeff's thoughts on how to make multiple career pivots the importance of being patient with your professional moves and why you should wait for the right opportunities to come along before making a move now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to explain how I think about when to turn down opportunities. 
Before we get to today's mental fuel, I'd like to thank Grasshopper for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Grasshopper is the virtual phone system designed for entrepreneurs and small business owners. It works just like a traditional phone system, but it's all managed online or by phone, so callers can reach you anytime, wherever you are. As a Career Relaunch listener, you can get $50 off your first order. Just go to trygrasshopper.com relaunch. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. And for today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to pick up on one of the things Jeff mentioned about making sure you wait for the right opportunities to come up and to avoid just taking a job for the sake of taking a job. And this is really top of mind for me right now because I was just speaking with a client last week who told me he was offered a job that he may not end up accepting, even though he's already resigned from his current job and doesn't have something else lined up. So I think turning down opportunities in general is a very difficult thing to do. There's a specific scenario of turning down opportunities I want to talk through today, which I find especially tough, which is when you're in a job you don't like and you land an offer to go somewhere else, but you don't feel like that opportunity is exactly right for you. What do you do? Do you go ahead and take it, knowing that this new job is your ticket out of that other job you don't like? Or do you hold out for another opportunity, knowing that another opportunity may not come for a while or even ever? So I'll start off by saying this is a really tough call, and there's not going to be one piece of universal wisdom I can share on this, because every big career move really is a very personal decision. But I'll give you an example from my own career history, and I'm going to try to be specific about the scenario here without divulging the exact companies involved here. A while back, I was in a job that wasn't exactly fulfilling me, and I decided to start looking for another job. The first place I started was with my network to let a few people in my industry know I was open to opportunities, and I eventually uncovered a role that felt like a really solid fit. In fact, the role was at the company I had initially wanted to go to, but they didn't have any openings at the time before I accepted that job I didn't like as much. I eventually interviewed and landed an offer to go there. And on paper, the fit was solid in terms of seniority, industry, job scope, location, and definitely salary. So I was initially tempted to jump on it, especially because I was looking to move on. But unfortunately, I didn't find the leadership team at that moment to be super inspiring. And on top of that, the brand I'd be working on wasn't really well known in the market I'd be responsible for, which wasn't quite in line with what I felt would be good for my career at that specific moment. Still, it was a situation where I had this bird in hand. And even though it wasn't a 10 out of 10, it was still like a 7 out of 10. And I think those are the tricky situations where the opportunity you're considering is good, but not great. And for me, what made this harder was that I didn't have anything else lined up. So if I said no, maybe nothing else would come along and I might be kicking myself later. So these are tough decisions, but three filters I use to judge these sorts of situations are the following. First, 
I think about whether or not the opportunity I'm considering allows me to reinforce the specific professional narrative I'm trying to build for myself. In this particular case, I was really trying to reinforce the narrative that I was on a trajectory toward being a reputable global marketer working on well-known global brands. But in this case, the brand I was considering wasn't really well-known in the region I was going to be responsible for. Second, I think about whether or not the opportunity is going to make the most of the strengths and skills I'm trying to exercise at that specific moment in my career. In other words, making the most of who I am. In this particular case, I really built up some interest and strengths in working on an innovative food brand. But this particular role I was considering would involve working on a much more traditional household goods brand. Finally, I think about whether or not I'm genuinely excited about the role itself. And I think this can be tricky because sometimes it's hard to decipher how much of your excitement is about just doing something different versus the actual opportunity itself. In this case, I just kind of found myself trying to convince myself that this was a good match for me. But deep down, I wasn't really that excited about it. And one way I could tell was that when I was describing the opportunity to a couple friends and family members, they told me I didn't seem super excited. And I think all three of these things, consistency with your professional narrative, alignment with your strengths, and enthusiasm for the role, really need to all be there because there are some serious switching costs involved with changing roles and changing companies. It's disruptive to change jobs no matter how you cut it, and it takes a long time to reestablish your reputation and goodwill in a new organization, so you really have to want it. Anyway, I just wanted to share this because I think it's very easy to say no to really bad or average opportunities that range between a 1 to 6 out of 10. It's also really easy to say yes to great opportunities that are a 9 or 10 out of 10. I personally find it very hard to say no to opportunities that fall somewhere like a 7 or 8 out of 10 because I struggle to know whether that's as good as it gets or if I should hold out for something better. Ultimately, If you're in a situation right now where you're trying to decide whether to say no to an opportunity, whether it might mean staying in a job you dislike a little longer or even being unemployed for a little bit longer, it comes down to deciding which decision does justice to your career and everything you've worked so hard to become. And as Jeff said, prevents you from having to compromise too much on values that matter to you. Whatever you decide, whichever inevitable trade-offs you're willing to make, I hope you'll make a choice that honors who you are and allows you to stay on track with the broader goals you may have in your life that go beyond a single job or your professional life alone. This brings me to a quote from Stephen Covey. You have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, and non-apologetically to say no to other things. And the way to do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. 
so my challenge to you, especially if you're wrestling with whether to say yes or no to a specific opportunity, is to try and decide on the single most important aspect of your career you really want to honor during this specific chapter in your career. For example, culture, work relationships, leveraging your strengths, impact, growth, or whatever else is important to you. Then take a hard look at whether or not this particular opportunity you're considering serves that specific interest. If it does, maybe it's worth proceeding. But if it doesn't, as tough as I know it can be, you may want to consider letting it go and saying no. Before we go today, I wanted to share this voicemail from Danny, a loyal listener in Los Angeles. Hi, Joseph. This is Danny back. I've been listening to the Career Relaunch podcast for about two years now. Um, When I first started listening, I was working on a temporary project in the auto industry, which is where I'd worked previously. And I was looking to change industries and move into the technology industry after the project. Unfortunately, I didn't find the right role before the project ended, so I was unemployed for a while. While being unemployed was tough, The Career Relaunch podcast inspired me to stay strong and kept me on track to find my dream job. Eventually, I ended up getting my dream job working in finance at one of the leading technology companies here in LA, where I'm doing very well and I'm very happy now. I want to thank you and the guests on your podcast for sharing all the inspiring stories and great advice that helped me to find my dream job. Please keep up the great work. Well, Danny, thanks so much for being a loyal listener for the past couple of years. And if you're listening right now, I know you and I have personally exchanged a couple of emails regarding your career journey. And I'm just really happy to hear the stories on this show have helped you through your transition. It's great to hear you kept going with that job search and waited patiently for the right opportunity for you. And I just wanted to wish you the best with your new role at that tech company in L.A. If you're enjoying Career Relaunch and want to share a snapshot of how the show has had an impact on your career, I'd really welcome you leaving a voicemail at careerrelaunch.net slash 57. You can share feedback on the show, a particular challenge you're struggling with, or just anything else on your mind that you feel would be helpful for other listeners out there in the world to hear. Again, you can leave that voicemail at careerrelaunch.net slash 57, where you can also find a summary of all the key concepts from today's conversation with Jeff. In our next episode of Career Relaunch, we're coming back over here to the UK, where I'll be featuring a designer in Birmingham who left the agency world to start his own design festival while also teaching and doing some freelance brand consultancy. We're going to talk about what he did to find more satisfying work and what it takes to build a brand new community that nurtures your personal interests. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch and a special thanks again to Jeff Shi for joining us today from San Francisco. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington. Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu and I'll see you next time.